Everybody mute. Hello, welcome to Deep Dives in the Bible, where we take our time and go deeply into God's Word. I am Father Michael Nasser from St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, we will focus on our continuing study of Matthew. We're in chapter 21, which is episode 85 in our discussion on the Gospel of Matthew. We're here with members of our St. Nicholas family and happy you've joined us. We'll begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us, mankind, the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of the blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as will pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to thee we ascribe glory. Together with thy Father, bless from everlasting, and let all holy, good, and life-giving spirits now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. So happy pre-feast of the presentation of the Lord in the temple. It was known as the meeting of the Lord in the temple. I don't see Maria on yet this morning, but she would tell you the Greek word is epapandi. The encounter, the meeting, the presentation. Um, and I mention that because as we begin Bible study every week, I read to you the prayer from the liturgy that precedes the reading of the gospel, the liturgy, which talks or asks God to illumine us because he is the illumination. And tonight's feast, uh, tomorrow's feast, is uh, one more of the series of feasts that we began back at Christmas um, continuing through Theophany, the revelation of Christ, and now his presentation, where he is the light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. So enlightenment is what we're all after here. It's why we've showed up to Bible study this morning. So happy pre And what, what else is the, uh, do we celebrate this weekend because it is the feast of the meeting of the Lord? Which saint? Simeon. Oh, uh, Simeon, yeah. Yeah, the day after. Simeon and Anna. Mother of St. Mary? No, the uh, the couple, not the couple, but the, the prophetess Anna and the elder Simeon who were in the temple waiting for the Messiah to come. Oh. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, shortly, when... shortly after that is Sam's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Are you the fifth, Sam? I forget. I'm the fifth. Yep. Yeah, you, my brother, my cousin. My I don't know if you knew that if you knew this or not, but all great people are born in February. <laughs> <laughs> Alan's sister is born in February. Rob's brother-in-law is born in February. My mother. You, Your you mother was born in February. That's right. <laughs> so that counts for something. All right. So let's. Let's get into our study. Uh, we are at uh, verse 33 in Matthew 21. And again, kind of look up in the text or flip back a page or two. Uh, we've had a flow of, of teaching. Actually, we had the, the parable of the two sons. Remember the one said, um, he's not going, but he goes. That was the previous section. I think it was uh, four or five verses on that. And then uh, we had the cursing of the fig tree right before that. 
and the uh, the elders trying to trick Jesus by what authority doing these things, who gave you the authority. So keep that in mind as we go into this, because you'll see it's it's absolutely connected. By the very beginning, Jesus says, here, here another parable. So he's continuing. So would somebody read for us? Um, verse 33, let's go through verse 46. Don't be shy. I read the last two weeks. <laughs> I can read How about it. You? There we go. Thanks, Sam. Does it come across okay on, on the line? Yep. Perfect. Okay. Leaders mistreat God, God's messengers. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever it falls, will it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Is that it? Yep. Very good. Thank you, Sam. Um, I want us to, to hear this parable as a really good way of, of teaching. It's not only particular teachings. We'll get into those. But to really understand the whole story of the Bible. So you've got the Bible, you have obviously the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, Old Testament is everything before Jesus, New Testament is Jesus and, and afterwards. And if you think about the whole story and the whole um, idea of what it means to follow God as set out in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, um, we, we sometimes can develop different ideas of what's happening and why is it happening. Right. For example, I would say it's a very common understanding to say that, you know, God created the world, mankind sinned. Then he takes his he makes his people, the people of Israel, as a chosen people. And he makes a covenant. He wants them to obey. And when they don't obey, then they get punished. And he sends them prophets to warn them before he punishes them. But they don't listen to the prophets. 
So you get those ideas and those, you know, um, sort of overall perception of what the story is. Does this parable change any of that understanding in any way uh, for anybody who's hearing it? I'll, I'll start you off here just to give you some idea. That's a big question. Um, when we think about Jesus or if we think about God giving the, the Ten Commandments, it was this is God's uh, law, and therefore our job is to obey it, right? Pure and simple. Here's the law. Here's what I want. You obey it. You don't obey it. You're going to get punished, and the prophets will come along and warn you, right? If you look at the parable— it has a very different overall context, right? There's a landowner or a householder. He plants a vineyard and sets a hedge around it, digs a wine press, builds a tower. So he, he prepares this area. He takes what was just land, and he makes a vineyard out of it. And if you have ever been to Napa Valley or other areas, north, even northern Michigan has uh, a lot more vineyards i think than maybe in the past but you know what does a vineyard look like to you who's, who's been to a vineyard and describe what it looks like it's just rows and rows of uh they look like fences with the vines growing up the fences i guess you'd call them They're not really fences yeah. wooden something or other yeah is it a pleasant environment yeah yeah right beautiful green rolling hills rolling. Fruit, rolling hills right the fruit it's orderly. It's it's kept well. It's it's been. It, you take what was just wild and and natural in some ways also beautiful, but in another way you you do all this to it. But what do you do it for? What's the purpose of a vineyard? What's that? To grow the wine. The yeah. grapes to make the wine and make a profit. Okay, so to 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 make wine, right? That's the idea and. You know, wine for us in, in our day and age is really, it's luxury, it's optional. In that day and age, you know, wine is, is a, a basic thing of life. You can't always drink the water because water isn't always going to be healthy to drink. But wine is safe, right? It has a lot of health benefits. Even now we know more than they knew in terms of what the science says about it. But anyway, so you take this area and you make it beautiful, you make it productive, you make it pleasant. Um, and who's it there to benefit? Well, first of all, whose is it? It's it's the landowners, right? And who's it there to benefit? Hmm. Who benefits from the vineyard being there? The landowner. The landowner will, right? Because he's going to expect a return on his investment. Who else? The people that live there. Okay, the tenants, right? Tenants are people who um, live in a place. They're living in a place, one, because they need a place to live, but two, because they can provide the needed labor to grow the grapes and to make the wine. And it's providing what for them? What, what do the tenants get out of the deal? Income. Yeah, which gives you what? Money to spend. Live. Yeah, life, yeah. right? This is your, we call it a livelihood. Right. Mm -hmm. This is the source of your it's not just money to spend because it's fun. Right. It's that's nice. But now you have food. Now you have a roof over your head. Now you have 
all the, the basics you need to live. And it's a very, again, it's a beautiful environment. Who else benefits? Those of us that consume the wine. Yeah. So people who are going to be looking for wine because there's a vineyard and they do their job right, they get wine. So there's a, a sense of production for benefit, not just profit, but benefit, right? In some sense, even life-giving. However, in this particular vineyard, because the householder was gone, <clears throat> the servants or the tenants, what did they do? They took it they over. They were greedy. Yeah. So the tenants were there, and their job was to grow the grapes, make the wine, live off their portion of it, and then give the rest to the landowner. So in this tale, the landowner sends the servants to get his fruit, right? The vineyard and go and, and get what's what's his. It's it's he owns the land. But the the tenants took the servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another. And then he sends more, and they do the same. How is this in some ways changing our perception of God's relationship with his people? Let's let's talk about the New Testament or the Old Testament first. Does this give you any different understanding of what you thought of in terms of God's relationship with, with uh, his people in the Old Testament? I'm not sure I see. Can you hear me, Father? Yeah. I'm not sure that I see a, a difference. I, in reading the Old Testament, God kept trying. He kept trying. He kept trying. And in this passage, we see he keeps trying. He keeps trying. He's opened up the vineyard, really, to the whole world. Um, and he just wanted his portion, um, whether it's a tithe, the first fruits, or whatever. It doesn't say either that. It just says it's fruits. Um, right. and, and he kept giving them a chance to do the right thing. For what purpose? To reach the promised land. What do you mean? Well, in the Old Testament, to reach the promised land. Maybe in this version, it'd be uh, eternal life. Okay, so that's a good example, Sam, what I was saying. It, it may, this can really inform us, right? The whole idea of going to the promised land was not necessarily what the people thought or maybe what we think about. We think it's a story about people who are, they're slaves, now they're in the wilderness. Now they go to the promised land, it's their land. You still hear this to today's day and age. Um, and it's there for them, right? But that's not what the story is telling us. So I'm not saying the Old Testament is wrong. I'm saying this is going to correct any wrong idea that we get about the story of the Old Testament. It was a story always, if we understood it correctly, because again, this is Jesus telling the parable. It was always about God creating an environment where he gets what his due, because he's the landowner, because he's God, and everyone else benefits by doing what was theirs to do. And what's the result? The result is not the obedience. That's the mechanism. That's the, the way it happens. The result is it bears fruit and everyone enjoys it according to their place. The landowner enjoys it. The tenants enjoy it. The, the people who, who buy the wine enjoy it. Everybody benefits. And all of this beautiful setting of the vineyard that had the hedge dug and dug a wine press and the, the whole bit. 
So the idea of bearing fruit, the idea of producing something not just for oneself, I think was inherent in the whole Testament. But let's fast forward now to the Pharisees who Jesus is, they're going to perceive by the end of this section, they perceive that Jesus is talking about them. How did they get to the place where we're seeing them act and, and say the things they're saying? What did they get wrong about their history in the Old Testament? And in what way would this parable have corrected that? Had they, had they been listening and understanding? What did they get wrong? Uh, they think that because they occupy um, the seat of Moses, that um, therefore they, they have accepted uh, God. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just say it in a different way. I think what you're saying, they were tenants, right? They occupied the seat. They were there. They were the residents. So because they're there and they're the residents and they're the ones doing all the work, well, here comes the landowner sending the servants to get his share. Well, forget this. Where's he been? We've been the one doing this. We've been working hard. We've been digging. We've been, you know, digging the well and, and carting the water. We did all this, and now he's going to come and take what is ours. And so what do they do? They kill two sets of servants. First set, second set. Because who did they, in the parable, cut out of, of, the, of, of the system? They cut the landowner out, right? Landowner came for what was his, because it's all his. They cut him out, by, by, or tried to, by, by killing the, uh, the servants, two sets. Look at what the Pharisees are doing. Go ahead, Susan. Uh, sorry, it's Gretchen. Um, this, I don't know if this is a little bit off topic, but is there anything specific to the wording of the the landowner going into a far country? Isn't that the same wording used with the prodigal son? He went to a far country. Like, is there anything yes. to that, or is that just random? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's very specific, and we we can spend more time on it at some point. He didn't go next door. Right. Uh -huh. He's in a far country, which means you don't know when he's coming back. Right. Sure. Was landowner present at the vineyard when he went to the far country? No. Physically, no. Right. He's in the far country. But he's the landowner. Right. It's, it's, it's his presence. It, it, he's present, but not physically. Because right. Because he owns it. There you go. He owns it. He's the one employing the tenants. He's the one that did all these, right? Without him, who did all this? He planted the vineyard. He set the hedge. He dug the wine press. He built the tower. And he let it out to the tenants. So while he's physically not there, he's absolutely integral to its ongoing operation, even when he's not there. Right. And think about our lives, how much we think, oh, if, if only I felt God was here. Right. Why does God seem so far? Why is he so quiet? Why is he in this far country when I need him here? So, no, it's, it's a very it's a you're absolutely right on, Gretchen, that it's it's actually vital to the story that he's not there. Right. Because if he was there. Would this story have played out the way it did? No. Why not? He would have been there, seeing what they're doing. 
And they probably would wouldn't have, have done it if they knew they'd get in trouble. Right. Have done it. Exactly. Because as soon as he kills one servant, he tells all the servants, kill the ones that just killed the servant, right? So it's the perceived absence of the landowner, I think, is critical to the story, right? And, and, and here's where it'll help you understand the story. So he kills the first set, kills the second set. Afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Right? Talk about two different views about what just happened. He sent two sets of servants. <clears throat> They've killed both sets. And for the landowner, what's the issue? It's respect. Like, okay, well, maybe they're just my servants. Maybe they didn't realize they're coming from me. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. Which was a valid thing to say. If if they wanted to see it as, as okay, he's not here, but he's still here. Well, now mm -hmm. he sent the son. What do the tenants do? The tenants say, this is the heir, right? He's the one that's going to inherit all this. Come, we'll kill him, and then we get the inheritance instead of him getting everything, right? What was that sin? Obviously, it's murder, but Covetous. what motivated it? Covetousness as well. Yeah. And greed. Coveting, greed, and there's one more layer. Rick says pride. Okay, two more layers. <laughs> Envy. 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 There you go, right? They were jealous. They were envious that the heir gets the inheritance. They didn't want the heir getting the inheritance. They wanted the inheritance. As wrong as it was for them to assume that they could have it or should have it, they said, oh, here's the heir. We'll kill him. We'll get it. We want what's his. The murder, the pride, all that, that's just the mechanism, right? What starts it is we want what's his. And, that, and here what, we go. And um, speaking from experience, <laughs> this happens where they, your father sends your son to do something, especially when he's young. Yep. Um, and the older people, especially the older people that have been around a while, don't um don't trust don't appreciate don't want him to succeed because they wanted to succeed uh it, it they they dislike that um that son right. i'm just speaking from my experience yeah. in a business with a father you know there you go and what is it about the son they dislike the fact that he is um, better, uh, having more success than they are. He yeah. rolls up the ladder quickly, so to speak. Or, or the right. heir apparent. They always say it's the heir apparent. Yeah, and here he is. The, he's not just a parent. He's the heir. They know. Like, this is the one. Yeah. And again, we did all this work. The landowner, what did he do? Yeah, he built it, but then we've been doing all this work. And he's off in his far country. Maybe he's sitting on the beach, you know, but he's not doing all the work. And now they send the heir, which probably worked even less than him. So, Alan, I think you're right on. I think you're – and what I want you all to see is the true story beyond what it looks like of why these Pharisees hate him so much. Right? Because they what so they what are they jealous of? They have all the power. He has no power. 
but they, he is the heir. What's Eric? They saw him sweeping in and invading their territory. People get very territorial <clears throat> and very protective of their domain, whether it's at work or anywhere else. It could be a position in society, you know, or it could right. be at their place of employment. It could be in the church. It could be anywhere. People yep. get protective and possessive and they feel threatened. People threaten people by their existence and by their capabilities, unfortunately, instead of right. applauding that and thinking, oh, you're adding to us. It's this you're taking from us. And that's what the Pharisees were seeing. They were seeing someone coming out of nowhere. And if they knew he was the son of a carpenter, they were denigrating him even more because somehow sure. that was not, you know, it wasn't smart enough, wasn't rich enough, wasn't uh, connected enough in their opinion. Plus people in the, in that society were calling him teacher, calling him rabbi. And he, he didn't go through probably the training that they went through. So they thought, what does he know? We, we've been educated in this. We know more than he does. But in fact, the people were responding him far more than they were responding to their Pharisees because he spoke the truth and people responded and they were jealous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all that, I totally agree with all of that. And Susie, you started by saying, what were they protecting? Themselves. Their territory. Well, you, their territory. There you go. Right. And here's the point. It's not their territory, right? right. God's <laughs> synagogue, God's temple, God's faith, God's community, God's nation, which they're seeing as theirs, right? And here's the tenets. It's their perception of what they think. It's their perception of who they are or what they think they own. And I have a question on 46. Yeah. Verse 46. Um, is that the first time where it says, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet? Is this the first time that we hear that they don't want to do anything because they're afraid of the multitudes? Well, we heard it a little bit back when it was John the Baptist. I mean, with Jesus. With Jesus, maybe. That's the first time I remember hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. So now they're, get, they're getting it. Exactly. And, and so they got to end him because now the multitudes are falling. And we know where the story's going to go because... They can't sway the multitude. Okay, so when Jesus was led to the cross, where were those multitudes that they were fearing, that the, the Pharisees and the Romans were all fearing that maybe they would do something mm -hmm. to, to save Jesus? Where were they then? So we get the answer to that, not by answering where the multitudes, because we can guess, right? They were afraid. Every pastor wants to get up on, on Good Friday, Holy Friday, and say, Five days ago, they screamed Hosanna, and now they're screaming crucified, right? So we don't know. Um, but we get a very good glimpse into that process with the disciples. Because they're the ones of everybody who should have stayed by his side. They were his closest. They had seen all the miracles. And what? What? why did they leave? Yeah, but they were only alone. Right. Mom, but why did they leave? They were scared. They were, they were afraid. afraid. But multitudes, if you're thinking of multitudes, mob, 
could possibly have saved him. Mm -hmm. So they uh -huh. all were. Yeah, but why did if, if the disciples were afraid? My guess is so were the people in the multitudes. Their personal fear, their personal safety was more important to them. Than saving him. Right. And to the point where they forgot everything they saw. I mean, here they are. The Pharisees are afraid of the multitudes. In some cases, it's going to be the, the disciples afraid of the multitudes. After they had seen him calm the seas, sight to the blind, all those things that he did. But still, it was, you said it right, the perception. The perception was, we're going to see, I'm unsafe. And we'll see it very clearly, most specifically with Peter. Right? The, the leader of the apostles, not once, not twice, three times will deny, I don't know the man. And it's, it's fear. And so, again, this is where there's a lot of, that we read into this, hopefully learn for our own lives about what stops us, it's almost always fear. But let's get, get back to the, the story. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the truth of the matter is, God gave us this instinct of survival. And, um, and it, it is so natural and human to want to preserve yourself. <laughs> so you can see where fear is a, a kind of an indicator or uh, an alarm to preserve yourself. That's what makes these apostles and all the saints so special and different. And, and I know you said, don't think they're different. They're human beings and so on and so forth. And I want you to look at them in the icons and, and see that you could be that too. But they put their faith eventually above their fear, above yep. their fear. So that self-preservation was no longer um, the driving force within them, but preserving right. the faith. And their what, replaced, what replaced that self-preservation? Um, faith, salvation, salvation, eternal salvation. From? Replaced from God, of course. There you go. Okay, so self-preservation, pre-saintliness, becomes reliance on God preservation, right? which is why we see them the way you see them in the icon. Exactly right. <clears throat> Trust in God again. Yeah. Trust when your eyes would tell you a different story, right? And this goes through the whole parable. When the, when the tenants saw the servants coming, they saw that all their hard work, they were only going to get their portion. Boy, if they got rid of these servants... They would get it all, right? So yeah, greed and jealousy, it's all, but it's also, this is how I take care of myself and my own, right? Why, why would I take 10? If I kill these guys, I get 100. Generally speaking, don't we, we kind of do that today. We're, I mean, God gives us everything really, but we think it's ours. <laughs> yep. it's not, none of it's ours really. That's right. That's very hard to, it's a hard concept. Yeah, and it's it's the one that we're always going to wrestle with because it's that same decision between am I going to save myself or am I going to let God save me? That's that's always a choice. Even by the way, we're we're talking about money and food. Even though, even if you look at our sins, right? Look at think about our own sins, our temptations, our our spiritual weaknesses. They're always going to be 
it's not just pleasure. Pleasure is, is one of the temptations, obviously, but pleasure is self-preservation. It's getting what I want slash need, right? Sometimes we even know, like, well, I don't really, I, I don't need this, but I really want it. Well, that really want can feel like a need. And so the sin, what motivates a lot of it is self-preservation. I really want that. I need it. I need a new car. I need a new house. I, I need this. I need that. And when we say, well, yeah, that's just the choice of words, maybe. Maybe that choice of words is a hint to where if we're providing for ourselves, like all of the ones with the parable and the Pharisees, they're taking care of themselves, which means they can't let God take care of them. There's no room left. And this is where Jesus is always going to be a challenge to them because he's always saying to them, without saying the words, look at me. I rely on my father. My father gives me everything. I, I, I go to be baptized. It's right to fulfill righteousness. You know, he's in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. He's always going to, to rely on his father to care for him, even to go into death. But he trusts, he loves, he obeys his father, and that allows him to, to follow. And then he says to us, and, and follow me. And, and Father, what you've been saying and everyone's been saying during this whole thing is how afraid everybody was. The fear of everyone motivated them. Um, right. And Jesus often says, fear not. Yep. That's, that's that's huge, I think, in our because so many of us, you know, we fear the whatever politics or, or this situation or that situation at work or whatever. And... Um, you know, that motivates that self-preservation kind of thing instead of trying to stop for a moment and, you know, give it to our Lord, this thing, whatever it is. And yep. if you're not, it's hard. Sure it is. Sure it is. Um, it's it's the hardest thing in, in many ways, but it is that narrow path. It is the path to say that if you're going to enter the kingdom, and this is again where listen to what the parable is and how this hopefully changes our any misperceptions we had. When he gets to 43, he says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. There's a couple of things that one is that our job at obedience is not just to follow rule because God wants the rule followed. It's because that rule, that way of obedience, produces fruit. So God's relationship with, was, with, with his people, Old and New Testament, was always about, I'm going to relate to you, I'm going to be in communion with you. For what purpose? The, the mechanism is love, but the purpose is to bear fruit, and if I could extrapolate, so that others can benefit from the kingdom. Right? The tenants could have made just enough wine for themselves and landowner, well, we got enough wine for ourselves. But again, look how the parable functions. It's about a man who creates this vineyard so that those within the vineyard benefit, and then it goes out. And if it's not going out, it's because there's not enough fruit being done within it. And this is where we'll hear Jesus um, say in many ways what the same thing the Old Testament prophets said was, repent. Right. The kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. It's coming. You should be working because there are fruits that are expected of it. 
And by the way, if, if this parable sounds familiar, it's because so many of the parables, it's a, it's a different story with the same theme, right? A man gave a great, a great banquet. He sent out servants to, to collect the, the, uh, the people to attend. A man built a vineyard. Um, a, a, a king did this. A, king, or a man bought a field. It's, it's, you got the owner, the one whose who's area that really is. And then those that benefit from finding it and their job then to share that benefit with, with the others. And one of Jesus's criticism of the Pharisees is going to be, you're laying burdens on the people. You don't even carry those burdens. You've made this about you. You're not making it about what God wants to give to the people. And that's where, again, because very different, these are the teachers of the law. They developed a very different understanding of the story of the Old Testament than what was the true story. They twisted it for what they wanted it to say. So in, Is in there verse any? Four, in verse, Go ahead, verse, Thank you, Alan. Uh, in verse 43, where he's saying the kingdom will be taken from you and giving to a, a nation bearing the fruits of all, is he saying he's washing his hands of Pharisees? I don't think he's washing his hands. He's saying, I think it's just a, a statement of fact. Right? So he tells the parable. And then he quotes the scripture about the stone being rejected. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a reference to the fact that he's the son. He's the heir. And they killed him because they were jealous. They wanted his inheritance. They took him, cast him out of the vineyard, out of the city. And they killed him. Um... They had that kingdom, right? When it says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, it implies that they had it. They rejected it. It wasn't like they were going to get it, maybe. They had it. And because what did they do? They killed the heir. They killed the servants and they killed the heir. They rejected the king and therefore rejected the kingdom. So it's... You know, we often want to say we, we hope God is, is merciful. We want to see him as we see him rightly as the judge, but we way too often put so much of our judgment in his hands when he's saying to us, it's not up to me, right? The gospel we read at every funeral. We read it last week at the funeral at St. George, those that were there, right? As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. It's not like, okay, make your case. And I'm going to deliberate, and we wonder, gee, what's the judge going to say? What's the jury going to say? It's all about, what did you do? You either did what you were supposed to do, or you didn't do what you're supposed to do. You either did give away the kingdom of God, and therefore, since you gave it away, you don't have it anymore. Or you didn't. You kept it. You, you, you produced the fruits of it. Say what you just said about the funeral, the line you just said. Say it again. So the gospel we read at the funeral is uh, it's Jesus talking about the judgment. And he says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. In other words, he's not, I mean, yes, he's the judge, but what does a judge do? A judge says, what happened? He had to figure out, all these people testify, they bring evidence. He's got to piece together, not his opinion, but what happened. And based on what happened, then he gives a judgment. In other words, it's in if you want to do, if you want to succeed in, in, in going to court, 
don't do the wrong thing, <laughs> right? You don't want to get a speeding ticket, don't speed. But if you speed and they give you a speeding ticket, you can't blame the judge, right? I've told some of this story. I was, uh, when we lived in Mexico and I came up to pick up something from the airport in San Diego and uh, leaving the airport, I didn't know this at the time, but two weeks after this, I get a letter in the mail with a picture of, of me driving the car and I was, the car was in, in, in the intersection 0.5 seconds after the light turned red. Not five seconds, 0.5 seconds. And that half a second cost me $401.50. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Man, I said, I'm here in Florida too. <laughs> I said, all right, well, that's a lot of money. I'll go to the court and I'll, I'll plead for the mercy. I'm not going to dispute. I'm, I mean, the camera saw me and I trust the computer knows what it's doing and it's right. It's not making it up. And I sat there for two hours listening to people in all these cases, right? It's a court, a court and all these people are there for their two minute case, whatever. And, you know, this one didn't show up for his case and he's, you know, contempt of court and this one didn't pay the ticket and that one broke his parole, blah, blah, blah. And all I'm hearing one after the other is, well, okay, we'll waive this, pay $10 to the clerk, you know, boom, next case. So now it's my turn. I get up there. I said, your honor, I'm not contesting. I, I trust the system works well. I said, but for the half a second I was in the intersection, I'm a priest, I'm working at an orphanage in Mexico. If you could reduce the fine, I would appreciate some mercy from the court. He says, mandatory sentencing, fee is as it is. Pay the clerk. <laughs> he was right, right? As much as I was upset about it, if I looked, I could have found out what's the cost of running a red light in San Diego. It doesn't matter if it's five seconds or 0.5 seconds. If I didn't want to get that ticket, I shouldn't. I should have slowed down on the yellow. So it's very easy for us to put way too much importance in God as the judge and not enough importance on what are we presenting in terms of the case, the, the proof of our life. And here, to get back to the parable, Jesus is trying to, because he's who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. They were right. They perceived he was speaking about them. Matthew doesn't say, well, they thought this, but Jesus didn't Jesus disagree. No, this is about them. And it's how did they get to the point where they would actually, as they're about to do, chapter 21 put to death not just a prophet right the prophets all hold most is held to be a prophet but put to death the very son of god but that's exactly what they're going to do and now hopefully if we understand the parable we see why questions on the parable what it means how we apply it is there any uh there's a lot of references in the bible both old and new testament to fruits of the earth um what i know that was a big part of their diet back then and all that is there any significance to that yeah i think there is uh, we talked about it last night in the class we talked about the eucharist um and i was making the point of that when we when we have the liturgy we bring to god bread and wine and what's unique about bread and wine 
bread and wine are not the creations of God. God doesn't make bread. God doesn't make wine. God makes wheat. God makes salt. God makes water. God makes yeast. God makes grapes. Um, and then we take it. So to your question, God grows grapes. He's the only one that can make a grape grow. Now, a grape, if you're going to have good grapes, there's a lot of work involved. You got to do what this guy did. You got to plant the vineyard. You got to set the hedge. You got to do the. So there's work involved that we're necessary to um, the quality of the grape. But still, humanity does not make a grape, right? We're getting into the area now of, of genetics and cloning. And people talk about it like, look what mankind can do. We can create, right? We can genetically make a grape. Well, you're not genetically making a grape. You're genetically copying what God made in the genes of a grape or the DNA or however that works. You're, 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 we're still dependent with all of our technological prowess and all that we can do. Only God can create. I mean, the closest we get is procreation, right? God gives us the blessing of taking, again, what's his um, and through the, the loving relationship of a husband and wife, a child is procreated. But that's the closest we get. But still, it's all dependent upon God. So, yeah, I think I think that's it's it's again, we can mistake. Whose is it right? Whose grapes were they? The tenants said these are our grapes. We're not going to give it back to the landowner. He didn't dig the do all this stuff. We're going to work. These are our grapes when really everyone in the story should have said all of this is God's. How do we then interact? What's what's our proper way to interact with it? The Pharisees and the chief priests, had they said everything is from God, right? Um, even this teacher, even this itinerant teacher, he didn't go to school, but he's from God. Is he God's son? We don't know. But everything comes from God. Let's listen to him. Let's be open as the multitudes are, and we'll find out. And they would have found out who he was. But they had made the mistake that, as Sue said earlier, they were protecting what they thought was their turf, their territory. Yeah, ownership is a a very um, deceptive concept. Does that which still I would apply say, to um, someone's pew? <laughs> very much so. <laughs> very, very much so. I, I heard something, I think it was yesterday. Somebody who years ago may have said to me, you know, I came to this church and somebody got upset because they said I sat in their pew. <laughs> and the same person said to me yesterday, I came to church somebody or Sunday and somebody was sitting in my pew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ownership is is very deceptive. It's it's really hard to see what is ours as not ours. But, but right? Father, isn't it also, and not to get into another subject, but and I think it's part of the subject that God gives us a lot of things and we can say to um, and acknowledge that the gift and everything that is given to us is, is from God, but we're also supposed to use that for the glory of God also. So acknowledging that it's good and from him, and all fruits are from him is step one, but 
also, what are you doing with those things? Is it for the glory of God or for ourselves? Right. Yeah. And even seeing how much um, authority you even have, right? If it's yours, you get to decide to do with what's yours. Where That was the parable we heard about the man was sending the people in the field and they worked, you know, one worked all day, one worked only an hour. The landowner says, this is mine. Isn't it my choice to do with what's mine? Now he's able to say that because he's the landowner. The rest of us who think we have what's ours, you know, we talk about this a lot in stewardship. We talk about, you know, pledging versus tithing in Old Testament, New Testament. You really understand the tithe now because what was the tithe? The tithe was the least amount of what God has entrusted to you that he expects you to hand back to him. That's where it begins. It's not where it ends. It's where it begins. It's not where you stop. It's where you start because the rest of the 90% is also his. And this gets to your point, Rob. It's of all these things, um, whose is it to decide? It's not like, well, God gets 10%. That's his. And I get the 90. No, all of it is his. I, I demonstrate the fact that I know it's all his because I give him the first 10% of what's his, I hand it back to him because it's not mine. And I know the next 90% is not mine also, but I'll work to use it to what his aims would be. That's that's Christian stewardship. Father, could I also um, make a point about earlier in chapter 21 of Matthew to tie two things together. Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, the, the parable is prophetic, obviously concerning the son and what they're going to do to the son. But when Jesus went in in earlier part of chapter 21 to cleanse the temple, we sometimes forget that he cleansed a certain part of the temple. He cleansed the outer court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. And so when he did that, he drove out the money changers and the people who were making God's house a mess and said, you have made my father's house a den of thieves, but it shall be a house of prayer. And then quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, a house of prayer for all nations. And so Jesus, before his passion, goes into the temple, clears out the outer court in preparation for bringing in the others, the ones to whom the kingdom is going to be handed because of the faithlessness of being able to provide fruit that the you know that God wants from his kingdom. And uh, I think it's important because it's at this point that we begin to see the transition from Jesus just being the Jewish Messiah to being the savior of the world. And we see it in this parable as Jesus has interpolated himself as the son in the parable, but also it is setting it up for the inclusion thank God, of all of us Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, well said, beautiful. Um, yeah, and, and again, we've said this before, so much of Matthew, obviously it's the story of Jesus, but it's the story of Jesus really doing what we see in this parable, where it goes, it's it's saying, okay, you uh, Jews, specifically, specifically the, the Jewish leaders, you thought this was about you and your people, 
I've come to save the whole world. And, and that's where, as, as the New Testament goes on, we'll see a lot of conflict in the early church about, you know, Jew versus Gentile, and they do they eat together, and um, the, the Gentiles get, get the short end of the stick at the taking care of the widows and acts. So there's, it's, it's going to be a tough thing. And I would say that continues today, right? Um, let's be honest about our own, our own community. We're so thankful that we see people coming in and they're coming and all these new faces and it's wonderful and it's, and all that's true. And nobody disagrees with that. However, some of us do struggle with, well, don't they know what we did to build this? Don't they know what our parents sacrificed? You know, they, they don't, uh, they're not from our, our culture. They got to learn. I hear this once in a while. So it's it's a hard thing. We're always going to struggle in our personal life, in our church life, at every level, to really see that everything is God's. And when he says it's time to take it from the old tenants to the new, when the kingdom of God is taken from them and given to a new nation, um, and whatever it is, that's because this is God's will. And our job is just to say, all right, God, what is your will? What do we do? It's all yours. And that's that's the attitude we want to hopefully uh, keep preserving and, and encourage. Yeah. By the way, I'm on that committee, and it's it's uh, very interesting. What which it's, committee is that? Um, the new one from the board on uh, recognizing how do um, people that are coming into the church. How do they learn or act more like us or, you know, understand where we're coming from? I'm kind yeah. of scratching my head on that one, Father, but I'm on the committee, so I'm going to give it a well, go and try to help out. Aren't you glad you came to Bible study today? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, because these these are the these issues. This is not just what happened 2000 years ago. And, oh, those Pharisees got to learn. I mean, I, I've said to, to people, if you want to understand orthodox temptation in terms of what we as a church are easily tempted to watch what the pharisees fall into because they thought of themselves as the right people doing the right thing and jesus is going to come in as we're going to hear in a few weeks when we hear the parable of the pharisee and the publican uh, god willing in the next two months we're going to see that icon every time we walk into church it'll be in the narthex reminding us about whose place is this? Who does it belong to? Who's the us? Who's the them? Who's right? Who's wrong? Uh, that that parable, in many ways, we're going to hear it in in a, in a few chapters, really upends a, a lot of things. And and as as Orthodox, because we do have the true faith, we do have the fullness of the faith. Um, it's easy to assume that we personally have it, possess it, control it. And therefore, we'll decide with whom we share it. Whereas this parable and the one we'll hear with the Pharisee public can tell us a very, very, very different story. Well, thank you, everyone. As thank always, you, it's always, encouraging discussion. Uh, we do not have Bible study next week. So I'm going to be away. Everybody gets a week off. And God willing, we will pick up the week after in chapter 22. Thank Goodbye, you. Bye, everyone. Take Bye. care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.